everyone on this side and almost no one, or I almost feel as if I need to <laughs> lean here and talk this way. But then I suppose the people over here would feel ignored, so we won't do that. We're glad that you're here this morning, whether you're a member or a visitor. I hope that the time we spend here together today will be beneficial to all of us. We'll leave here having been uplifted for the time we've spent together worshiping God today and having fellowship with each other. It appears we have quite a few people out of town this week, and this is a holiday week. This week our country celebrates Independence Day. And amidst all of the fireworks and parades and hot dog eating contests and whatever else is going on, there will be a time for reflection on what this day means, the actions of the Founding Fathers, reflection on the ideals enshrined in the Declaration of Independence, equality of all people before their Creator, the values, the rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, are the privileges that come with being a citizen of this country. We're truly blessed to live in the United States. This is a great nation. But as Christians, we are citizens of another nation, a greater nation, the kingdom of God. That's the nation that Daniel talks about in our text that was read just a few moments ago. The king that he's addressing there is Nebuchadnezzar. He's the one who had that vision of the strange image, all of those different metals. Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful and the longest reigning monarch of Babylon, the mightiest state in the world in its day. His capital city has been excavated, and the site is over 2,000 acres. That makes it the largest archaeological site in the entire Middle East. He built the Hanging Gardens, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This was a mighty empire and a mighty king. And yet, despite its grandeur, Daniel prophesied in the interpretation of that dream that another kingdom would take its place. And so it happened. The Babylonians were overthrown by the Persians under Cyrus. The Persians were eventually supplanted by the Greeks under Alexander the Great. Finally, the Roman Empire came to dominate the entire civilized world, strong as iron, breaking and shattering all things into pieces, as Daniel puts it, from the Mediterranean Sea all the way to the Middle East. In the days of those kings, the Romans, the God of heaven established a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. In fact, as Daniel said, it will break into pieces all earthly kingdoms. That prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus. After his resurrection, Jesus ascended and he was exalted to the right hand of God where he's been enthroned. He sits and he reigns over his kingdom in this world, his people, the church. The kingdom of God here in the present, 
the great nation to which we belong, greater than Babylon, greater than Rome, greater than the United States, is the church. That's the greatest nation to which anyone could possibly belong. And that means that each individual congregation is sort of like a, a, little, a little outpost, a, a fortress, a, a colony of that kingdom of God here in this world. Now, if I were to ask you what makes this country great, what makes America a great nation, each of us could probably rattle off a lengthy list of characteristics that we thought was important to us that this nation exemplified. But what makes the kingdom of God great? What makes the church great? Or to bring it down to the local level, to those little colonies, those outposts, what makes a church great? That's the idea I'd like for us to think about together for just a few moments this morning. And I want to suggest a few things along this line, and we'll begin by looking at some ideas of greatness that people often put forward. These are measures that human beings have of what defines a great church, but what we'll see is they look at things in very human-centric terms. In reality, they're not essential. Well, they might go hand-in-hand as traits of a great church. A great church could have these things, but they're not fundamental to being a great church. So first of all, the average person, when they think of a great church, if you were to ask someone, what, what makes a great church? Size. That would be the first thing that they come up with. How many members are there? If there's a long list of names, well, it must be a great church because everybody's going there. Well, it may be, and it may not be. Now, this isn't a large congregation, obviously, but it's not a small one either. It might surprise you to know that it's actually above average, statistically speaking, in terms of the average church in this country. It's medium-sized. There's strength in numbers, but numbers don't necessarily make a church great. Did you know that if demographic trends continue to hold true, by about the year 2070, there will be more Muslims in the world than professing Christians. If numbers were all that mattered, that would mean at that point that Islam would be greater than Christianity. That's logical, isn't it? But numbers aren't primary. That's not what's most important. And in fact, If we want to study this subject in Scripture, there's ample material on this. The best example I can think of, and a story that's probably familiar to many of us here, comes from Judges chapter 7. You remember this? It's the story of Gideon. Gideon musters men to go out and fight against the Philistines. And at first, over 30,000 men come. They gather up to go fight. And God says, nope, that's too many. And gradually, through a series of different mechanisms, they whittle that number down, they whittle it down again and again until at last there's only 300 men remaining. Now, these were men of courage and fortitude and strength and devotion. They went out to fight the Philistines, and at the sight of this 300 men, the enemy melted. 
They were defeated. Why? Well, it's not because those 300 men were anything great in themselves. It's because God was with them. God fought for them. And the Lord has often used the few to conquer the many. On the other hand, I think of the example of David trusting in numbers and counting up his troops. You remember this? This is in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. This is a pretty obscure story. You might not recall it. David decides he's going to take a counting, a census of his soldiers to determine how many he has. And God rebukes him for that. Why? It seems perfectly reasonable by human logic. It's because that indicated he was trusting in himself and his might rather than trusting in God, who'd always promised to fight for him. Numbers are important to God only in the sense that his desire is for all people to be saved. But in themselves, he doesn't need those numbers. He can work without them. They don't spell greatness. What about wealth? A lot of people would say that wealth is indicative of a great church. If it has a large weekly contribution, if it has a massive budget, it must be a great church. But the early church wasn't wealthy, was it? Far from it, in fact. The New Testament church was generous, but a generous church isn't necessarily a wealthy church. I think of the churches in Macedonia that Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you remember the context, Paul is gathering up a collection from several different congregations to go and to take to Jerusalem for the relief of the poor saints there. And he's urging the Corinthians to contribute to that, and in trying to, to stir them up to do it, he appeals to the examples of the churches in Macedonia. He writes in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, verse 1, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They were poor, and yet they gave generously above and beyond their means. Now that sort of generosity certainly is the mark of a great church. And it's fine when those two things go hand in hand, when a wealthy church is a generous church. In fact, that's fantastic because that's all the more good that you can do. But wealthy congregations aren't necessarily generous. I can think of one church I know in my own personal experience. It's significantly smaller than this one. They have maybe 50 members at best, and I'm probably significantly overestimating. They have, with those 50 members, a half a million dollars in the bank. And yet they refuse to support any mission works because they're worried about their cash flow. They're concerned because they're so small they might not be able to replenish it. They need to save that for a rainy day. 
Now that's a wealthy church, particularly in proportion to its numbers. But that's not a generous church. It's certainly not a great church. Conversely, at least in in my experience here, and I can't speak to the whole history of this congregation or every single program, but I've been encouraged overall by the generosity of this congregation, many of the programs it undertakes, and uh, in particular, when someone's come to the elders with a need or with some new program and they discuss it, when I've been present for those talks, the question has never been, well, can we really afford that? It's always focused on how can we make that happen. It's a view to trying to do what we can with what's been entrusted here. It's not wealth that makes a church great. God cares about how we use what's been entrusted to us, not how big a war chest we can store up and sit upon. What about great facilities? When many people think of a great church, it must be one that has the the best, most modern, newest buildings. It's got a large campus, or these days it might even have multiple campuses spread all across town or in different towns. You know, in the early days of the church, not only did they not have magnificent buildings like that, they didn't have any buildings at all. We don't have any evidence of an independent, standalone church building until the third century at the earliest. Oh, those earliest Christians met in people's houses. In fact, you can read through Paul's letters and see him mentioned on a couple of occasions. For example, there was a church that met in the house of his friends Priscilla and Aquila in both Rome and in Corinth. And yet, in spite of that meeting in homes, the Jerusalem church to take one case, is one of the greatest churches that ever existed. Read through those early chapters of Acts. They grew in leaps and bounds. They had a great reputation even among outsiders, those who were non-believers. They met together daily to encourage one another, to have fellowship with one another, to, to pray and to study the Word. Oh, buildings are fine. They might accompany a great church, but they're not essential. For a church to be great, it doesn't have to have the newest, most modern, finest facilities because the church is the people, not the building. There are others who think that a long and illustrious history is what makes a church great. If you've ever been to London, I've been fortunate enough to be able to go to London once in my life. I don't know that I'll ever be able to uh, again. It was kind of unusual circumstances. But if you ever have the privilege of going to London, one of the things that you'll inevitably tour is Westminster Abbey. Now, if you're a history nut like I am, this is a a wonderful place to be. This is a religious building that is just steeped in history. There are kings and poets and national heroes who are literally buried there within the building. The architecture is wondrous to behold. They'll tell you there that the church began to be built in the 11th century, and of course they've added on different uh, facilities to it since then. It's had a long and notable history. Not too far away there in London is is St. Paul's. If you go there, they'll tell you that it was designed by the architect Sir Christopher Wren, who was the greatest builder and architect of his day. And that building's been in continuous service for 
over 300 years at this point. We haven't been here nearly as long as since the 11th century or even 300 years ago. And this building is nothing particularly special compared to those buildings. But it's not how long a congregation has existed, and it's not how uh, notable its history. What counts is what it is now. I mentioned touring Westminster Abbey. Westminster Abbey today is primarily a, a tourist destination, a monument. You go inside mostly to see the relics of dead people. Now, sometimes you can go in churches and see mostly the relics of dead people. But that's not what we're striving for. That's not what makes a church great. That's certainly not what God intends. There are many people who think that prestige is what makes a church great. How many important local community leaders are members of that congregation? How many bank presidents or attorneys or prominent local businessmen do you have there on the membership rolls? I've even known of some people, and you've probably seen this too, who will quite literally attend a particular church because it's good for their career. They can get ahead because it's a networking opportunity for them. But the Lord doesn't measure greatness according to the uh, social sphere that its members operate in. In fact, James actually warns us against this very mindset. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Hasn't God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? We could probably go on with this list, but the point is, these are things that don't matter and yet they're the very standards that human beings often apply to measuring the greatness of a church. But God doesn't see as human beings see. Remember, that's what he told Samuel when he sent him to anoint David as king. Whenever David's older brothers were coming up before him and Samuel thought to himself, surely this is the Lord's anointed before me. He looks like a king. God said, don't pay any attention to his outward appearance. I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't see as man sees. The Lord looks on the heart. What does make a church great? I want to suggest just a few things that are essential to greatness. And the first trait that is vital to being a great church is a knowledge of the will of God. A church begins to be great when it knows God's will, when it's steeped in God's will, when it's so saturated with it that it can easily distinguish God's will from what's not his will. We come to know God's will through study, through study of the scriptures. I think of what Paul says 
about the church in Berea. Do you remember this? In Acts chapter 17. He'd just been driven out of Thessalonica. He goes and he preaches the gospel in Berea. And in contrast to those in Thessalonica, Luke tells us that those Bereans were more noble because they searched the scriptures daily to see whether or not the things that Paul was preaching and teaching were true. It's something that he emphasized even further to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Size, wealth, facilities, prestige, all those things that we mentioned, those don't mean anything if a church doesn't know God's will. A second essential characteristic is a deep, abiding faith in God. As the Hebrews writer puts it, chapter 11, verse 6, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever comes to God must believe that he is or that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Paul, again writing to Timothy, helps demonstrate to us just what sort of faith is needed. He says, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. You see, the faith that Christians need, that the church needs, is more than just an intellectual assent, just vaguely accepting the fact that, yeah, God exists. It's trust, trust in God. That's the heart of faith. As Paul says there, it's being persuaded that God is able to do what he said. Or as he puts it in Romans chapter 4 with the example of Abraham, Abraham was convinced that God would do what he'd promised. And of course, biblical faith, this deep abiding faith, includes faithfulness. That is the obedience of faith, Paul calls it in the letter to the Romans. A great church doesn't place their faith in our facilities or in our programs, no matter how great they may be. It doesn't place it in whatever gimmick we can use to get people in the door. It doesn't place it in the preacher or anyone else who's able to hopefully drive some things. A great church places their faith in God. Oh, it's going to do its job to the best of its ability, but it's faithful to God, and it trusts Him to deliver the results. We plant, we water, but God's the one who gives the increase, if he wills. A third essential quality is a genuine consecration, a devotion to the Lord. That's what Jesus meant when he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things that we so typically focus on. Those will be added to you, Matthew 6, 33. That's a quality that Paul possessed in great measure. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul has been writing about all of these wonderful attributes he had. If we want to measure greatness in human terms, Paul had all of those things. He's listed them off. But then he says in verse number 12, he's given them up. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. 
Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says everything that human beings count as great, I've thrown it away. I only care about serving God. I'm devoted to Him. The trouble with so many professing Christians is that their faith has such a a shallow hold on them. It's just a fragmentary thing for so many of us. But the Lord would rather have 10 men of stout heart than 10,000 who are lukewarm like that church in Laodicea. It's written about in Revelation. You see, the enemy can match us in wealth or facilities or prestige or anything else we might want to put up there. Those are the things that he trades in. But the one thing he can't match is a Christ-like spirit. Only when we commit ourselves fully to the Lord, only when we are willing to submit to him and to be remade into his image, do we begin to build up a great church. Only then can we be what God has called us to be. Another key to greatness is work. No church can be great until it has the willingness to carry out the work that God has given it to do. James writes writes about this, James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God our Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. See, having the right doctrine isn't enough. We might be right in line with Scripture all the way down the line when it comes to what we teach. But we have to have a willingness to go out and to feed the hungry and to clothe the naked and to help the poor and to visit those who are sick and who are suffering and to lift up the brokenhearted and to go and to try to reach out to the whole wide wounded world. That's part of our call. And the Lord intends for us to carry this message about Christ to everyone that we can, everyone we come in contact with. See, the church isn't just a place of knowing, a place of believing. It's a place of doing, a place of action. I think about what Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the way that he brings it to a close. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He says on that last day that a lot of people will say to him, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these great things in your name? He'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. And there follows then that parable of the two builders. The one who builds their house on the rock of his teachings, who goes out and puts into practice what he says, or the one who builds it on the foundation of sand, those things that we value. And when the storm comes, that house built on human wit and wisdom is not going to be able to stand. It has to be built on that firm foundation. The final trait that we want to mention this morning of a great church is a warm and continuing fellowship among the members of the congregation. We have to love each other. There shouldn't be any jealousy or factionalism or cliques. 
There shouldn't be anything like the old story about the people sitting on opposite sides of the auditorium who come together on a Sunday morning and sing, oh, how I love Jesus at the top of their lungs, but haven't spoken to each other in 20 years. That doesn't make a great church. Jesus said, this is the badge of our discipleship. This is how other people will know we belong to him. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, so you too also must love one another. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples. But so many people haven't endeavored to keep that unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 4. And incidentally, you want to talk about how numbers relate to greatness? I actually think this is opinion here, but I think this is a place where larger congregations can break down. Because there's a tendency to anonymity. People can fall through the cracks. They're unknown. There's no real sense of community. And in large churches where that happens, it doesn't happen at all, but in many of them, there is no real sense of of fellowship, no sense of belonging, no sense of love the way that we're called to have. A church this size can be and should be like a family exhibiting mutual care and concern for each other. That's what God calls us to. And that lends itself to greatness. So before a church can be great, there must be a thorough understanding of God's will. There must be a deep faith that is a trust in God. There must be a genuine consecration, a devotion to the Lord. There has to be a willingness to work And there has to be real love and fellowship. And if you got those five things, well, then you're beginning to tell the story of a great church in the way that God lays it out. It's not about size. It's not wealth. It's not great facilities. It's not a glorious history. It's not prestige. All those things might go along with it in some cases but they're not what God values most. So the question I want us to ask ourselves this morning is, where do we fit in? Are we valuing the right things in the church? Or do we evaluate this church according to human standards? Do we look around and say, well, I wish we had more numbers, or I wish our contribution was greater, I wish we had this program, whatever it may be. I'm not saying any of those wishes are wrong in themselves. But do we ever say, man, I wish we had more love and fellowship with each other. I wish we were more devoted to God. I wish we had a a deeper faith in him. The church is great. This church, like all churches has the potential to be greater still are we doing our part to contribute to that are we evaluating it by the biblical standard perhaps you're here this morning and you've never become part of God's people you have never become a citizen of this great nation the Lord invites you this morning to place your faith in Jesus, to turn to God in repentance, 
to be buried with the Lord in the waters of baptism, that sort of naturalization ceremony where you become a citizen, you're added to the kingdom of God. Maybe you're here today, you already are a Christian, but you've evaluated your walk with the Lord according to human standards rather than His. Maybe you need to make changes. Whatever your need may be, if we can help you in any way, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.